You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. So glad that you are here. Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we are. We're going to start in verse 9, and I'm going to read down to verse 20. Nehemiah chapter 9, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one about what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem. And they were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, let's rise up and let's build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem of Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right in the claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I thank you so much for changed lives. I thank you for the three men who just came and testified of your power in their life. You are alive and you are active and you are moving and you are filling our hearts with your grace and your mercy and your love and you are showing us that you are better than the things of this world. And I pray that it will continue right now through the preaching of the word. I pray that you will take it and you'll make it alive in our hearts. I pray... Father, for our youth group right now, I know as they are out and they are traveling, that you will be with them, bring them safely back to us. And I pray for the rest of us in our time. Every man, woman, and child is here. That Father, we will leave differently than we came in because we've experienced you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, I read the New York Times best-selling book, The Hillbilly Elegy which is a fascinating read about how white generational poverty, particularly in the South, is creating this mindset that's keeping families down. And as I read this book, I thought about the hundreds of impoverished kids and teenagers that I worked with over a five-year period when I worked for Arkansas Counseling Associates. And what dawned upon me, which I'd never thought before, is how as as I read this book, what I thought about is over a five-year period, though I worked with all sorts of teenagers, not once in five years did I graduate one of those teenagers. 
Not one time in five years that I see a teenager that I worked with in poverty go on to graduate high school. And what I realized as I read this book is one of the reasons for this is because of a, con- a condition that psychologists are referring to as a learned helplessness. And if you're unfamiliar with this condition, basically learned helplessness is a condition in which a person, because of circumstances in their life or because of a traumatic event, suffer from a sense of powerlessness. It's a learned behavior. It's not a behavior that you were born with, but a learned behavior where a child, for example, might say this. Well, because my mom and dad never graduated from high school, I know there's no way that I will ever be able to graduate from high school. That's one example of many, but it's a condition where because of an environment that we find ourselves in, we may be tempted to believe the lie there is nothing that we can do about the brokenness that we find ourselves in. And the reason I share that with you this morning is as I look out over the landscape of the church, I am becoming more and more convinced that there are many people who have developed what I would call a spiritual learned helplessness. Uh, of people who look at the brokenness in their lives or in the lives of others, and rather than stepping up to actually meet that need with courage, they sit back with a victim mentality, and they make excuses on why things will always just be the way that they are. And if that's where you are this morning, whether that be in your marriage, or you look at your marriage, it's just going to always be that way, or because of something that's going on in your career, or maybe an addiction, or some sin that you've been kind of hiding below the surface and trying to manage for years, my hope is that God is going to use this message today to take you from a place of spiritual learned helplessness into a place of holy initiative. And what I want you to see this morning is just before we dive back into Nehemiah, is I want you to understand the context in case you were sleeping in the last two sermons or maybe you weren't here for them. Basically what's going on in Nehemiah is you have this man, Nehemiah, who's an Israelite man, and he's living in the darkest day in Israel's history. You have to get this, okay? Uh, Israel at this point in their history has been taken into captivity. They've been spread across the corners of the earth. And they've had their capital city, including their temple and their gates, burnt to the ground. And as a result of this, what's happening is Israel, which was supposed to be a light to the nations, has now become a laughingstock to the nations. I mean, it appears to everyone that the covenant promises that God has made to them back in Genesis 12 is now dead. And so Nehemiah, he's alive during a time where the people of Israel are dropping like flies. He's alive where many people around him in the culture are saying, you know what? Forget God. He's not faithful to his promises. He cannot be trusted. So let's just stop worshiping him and let's just live however we want to live. But for Nehemiah, because he's a man of holy ambition, because he cares about the things that God cares about, rather than playing a victim mentality or making excuses on why things will just always be this way, Nehemiah decides to make himself available. He stands up in a time period where it had been easy for him to sit back in a very cushy and comfy position that he was in to say, you know what? I'm living 800 miles from Israel. Who cares about them? I made it. I rose above the ashes, so I'm just going to do my own thing. But rather than doing that, Nehemiah says, you know what? I'm not happy about this situation. I'm broken by the brokenness that I see in the people of Israel. And you know what? I want to be a solution to the problem. 
I don't want to just complain about the problem. I want to be the change that I want to see in the world around me. And as a result, listen, because Nehemiah opened his heart to God, God opened a door for Nehemiah to be used by him greatly. And so he places Nehemiah in front of the Persian king, who is the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time. And, and Adam talked about this last week. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4, the king of Persia sees Nehemiah in pain. He sees him hurting. He sees him broken over what's happening in Israel. And as a result, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4, the king says, Hey, Nehemiah, what do you need from me? What, what is it that I can do for you? As I read that verse this past week, I was reminded of Proverbs 21.1 that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. It's exactly what we see happen right here in this story. In chapter 1, Nehemiah hears about the brokenness in Israel. He prays, God, I want you to do something about this. By chapter 2, God says, you got it. And what does he do? He turns the heart of the most powerful man on the planet towards Nehemiah and the people of Israel. So now all of a sudden, this man who is indifferent to Israel cares about Israel. And so he says to Nehemiah, hey, what do you need me to do? What do you you want? And and I love this question because Nehemiah is about to respond with detail. I just want to ask you today, if somebody asks you, what do you need in order to become the man or woman God created you to be? Do you even know the answer? Nehemiah, after months of prayer and fasting, knows exactly what he needs and the people of Israel need. So in verse 5 through 8, I won't read the verses, but he says to the king, First thing I need you to do is I need you to let me out of my current position as a cupbearer so I can get out of here, go back to Jerusalem, and rebuild the walls. Second thing I need you to do is write a letter saying that you back this work so if anybody asks me, I can show them that, hey, the most powerful man on the planet supports this. Third, what I need you to do is I need you to set a particular time that I can actually leave and get out of here. And then fourth, um, there's some things I need I don't have. So if you don't mind, I would like for you to give me the resources to do the very thing I believe God has put in my heart. And some of what I need is lumber. And so if you could just talk to the guys who oversee your forest to get me some lumber, that would be great. He knows exactly what he needs. I mean, Nehemiah clearly is a man of passion. He's a man of prayer. But because, listen to this, guys, he knows when it comes to the mission of God that passion and prayer are not enough. He is also a man with a plan. And what we see in this story is Nehemiah has no plans to fail. He only has plans to finish. He only has plans to see through to the end what God has put in his heart. And because there are resources that he needs that he does not have, he says, King, here's what I need. And then look at verse 8. And he says, The king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. If you were to ask me what my life verse is, that might be it right there. It's the idea that if I will stay committed to God, even if everybody else turns away, no matter what my personality type is, no matter who I am or where I've come from, if I will seek first the kingdom of God, even when everyone else is turning away, you know what God will do? Not only will he support me, but he'll strengthen me to do the very thing that he put me on this planet to do. That's incredible to me. 
Nehemiah is living in a time where people are turning away from God left and right. However, because Nehemiah is a man who remains fully committed to God, because he is a man with a holy ambition, he says, the good hand of God was upon me. And as a result of this, what happens in verse 9, if you, if you keep reading, not only did the Persian king give Nehemiah everything he asked for, but he actually gave him above and beyond what he asked for, because he gave him officers of his own army to protect him in his journey. It's a reminder to each of us today, listen guys, that God is always ready to strengthen the solitary individual who is simply willing to do God's will. Question is this morning is, do you believe that? Or are we just here because that's just the right thing to do? Go to church on Sunday. Do you really believe right now in your heart of hearts that the God of the universe, who according to Ephesians is able to do far more than we could ever think or ask, the God who owns it all and is all-powerful stands ready and willing to give you whatever you need to make your life count for the good of others and the glory of God? If not, go read your Bible. Go read the book of Acts, for example, where you'll see over and over God use a bunch of goofballs to turn the world upside down. God is famous, I'm telling you, from Genesis to Revelation, God is famous for doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. That's his MO, that's what he does. Philip Yancey says it like this, Jesus, often reluctant to perform miracles, considered it progress when he departed earth and entrusted his mission to his flawed disciples. He goes on and he says, like a proud parent, God seems to take more delight in the bumbling achievements of his stripling children than in any self-display of his own omnipotence. The truth is, please hear me, the truth is there is no place in the mission of God for a person who leans on a shovel and prays for a ditch. There is no place... In the mission of God for a person who prays and has a passion to see God do extraordinary things, but is not willing to put any skin in the game when it comes to doing that kind of work. And this is because God, it's not that God needs us. Did you know that Jared Pickney can die today and Fellowship Peril can go to the dust and God's still going to fulfill his mission? Did you know that? God doesn't need us. But he finds greater delight in flexing his muscles through us than he does displaying his own power apart from us. So he just stands, he's just like, if you're just willing, man, I I, I love this stuff. This is what I do. So if you're willing, man, I, I will do great things in you and through you. Therefore, man, because this is true, when it comes to doing something about the brokenness in our lives or the lives of others, yes, you need passion, yes, you need prayer, but you also need a plan. And you need to be willing to act on that plan. If you notice, Nehemiah, it's incredible. He believed the promises of God. And God had promised, I'm going to protect Israel. I'm going to take care of Israel. It's going to be through Israel. They're going to bless the nations. Nehemiah could have heard that and said, well, I've heard the promises of God. I know he's going to do something about the brokenness. So why should I stand up and do anything about the walls? Because I know God's all powerful and he can do whatever he wants if he wants. He didn't say that. Instead, Nehemiah said, you know what? I believe God's promises, and I believe the way that God's going to initiate these promises and fulfill them is through people like me, so I'm going to step up, and I'm going to be the one that goes to help rebuild the wall. So he fasts, and he prays for months, and after praying and after fasting, he develops a plan of action that he can act on so the walls of Jerusalem can be built. And by the way, keep in mind, Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament. 
It's not that way in your Bible, but it really was. It was the only. It was the last book written in the Old Testament. It was the last thing that happened before Christ had come into the world for the salvation of the world. It's incredible to think about. Nehemiah said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sit back and say, well, I'm just going to let go and let God. No, he steps up, he makes a plan, and he acts on it. In Proverbs 13, 4, I love this verse. It says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Have you, I don't know if you've noticed this. There are a lot of people in the world who crave a better life. Have you noticed that? There are a lot of people who wish things were different than what they are. According to the scripture, wishes, desires, passions, good intentions are never enough. Solomon says right here, it's the diligent, it's the one who will act on those God-given desires who are richly supplied. Proverbs 14, 23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. You know what the difference is between someone who's just a wishful thinker and someone with holy ambition? You know what the difference is between someone with a holy ambition and a daydreamer? A daydreamer is all talk. Someone with holy ambition puts their money where their mouth is. They're willing to step up and act on those passions. They're willing to take a benefit or take initiative for the benefit of others. And again, please don't misunderstand me. Is passion a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing. Is prayer a good thing? Yes, it's essential in the Christian life. In fact, we did a series on this several months ago on how it's the air we breathe as a Christian. But listen, guys, please hear me today. If you want to see God do great things in you and through you, like Nehemiah, at some point you have to do the very non-glamorous work of putting a pen to paper. There comes a time, it doesn't, it doesn't look spiritual, it doesn't look you know, amazing, right? But there has to come a time, if you want to be used by God in great ways, where you have to actually consider the cost. Jesus actually says you're a fool if you try to build a house without thinking about a plan before you do it. There comes a time where you have to think about the time and the, the equipment and the contingencies and the stages you're going to have to go through in order to accomplish the thing that God has put on your heart to accomplish. Um, there is an amazing young man by the name of Jabril who our missional community has been having time, uh, has been able to work with recently. And that's him in the middle. This is actually Jabril and Malim. They came to our Easter service, the very first Christian service I've ever been a part of. These men are refugees from Kenya. Um, they just moved here in November. And here's the thing about Jabril, the one in the middle there, is... Um, there's a lot I could say about him, but Jabril was separated from his mom when he was eight years old. Never met his dad. We think his dad was killed in war, um, was forced out of his country. He's originally from Ethiopia. And you know what Jabril did? He's 11 years old, and he wants to go to school. His, his brother, Malim's three years younger than him, so he actually kind of became like a father figure for Malim. 11 years old, he went and got him a hot dog stand and managed a hot dog stand so they could make money to have clothes to wear to school. 11. Then he went on to make soap so that he could provide that way and, and, and just basically kind of suffer through life, doing whatever he could to provide for his younger brother. And eventually he came to a place where he said, you know what, I don't, I don't want to live this life forever. Like I want, to have a, I want to have a family someday. I want to have a job. I want to be a husband. I want, to have, I want to have kids. And you know what he did as a result of that? He didn't just sit there and dream about that. He began to ask this question, what am I going to have to do in order to make that happen? And so he started his refugee status, began to do all the paperwork for that. That was a seven-year process, by the way, from the time he started that process to the time he could finish it. Eventually, he finished it. He was able to move here with Malim to America. 
He knew that in order for him to get a good job and in order for him to have a good life for himself, he's going to have to go to school. So he enrolled at Paragould High School. He now has a 3.5 GPA, despite the fact that English isn't even his first primary language. He is uh, beginning to uh, apply for different colleges, begin to take, you know, uh, the ACT, do different things so he can try to get into college. He already has a plan for what he wants to do. He's already proposed to his girlfriend, Cynthia, back in Kenya. The father has agreed to it. He's planning on you asking, when's he going to get married? 2022. He's got it on there. He's got to finish college 2022 before he gets married. He knows also that the day we're driving, he says, Pastor Jared, how do I build credit? I need credit. <laughs> and so he's 17. 17. So he's working on getting a job also because that's one way that he can provide for his sister back uh, in Kenya because they won't release her yet and she needs money in order to survive. So, so he's just got a job at Walmart. But Walmart said in order for you to start working, you have to be able to drive a car. So our missional community was able to pull money together. We got him a car, and but he is the one who took the written test, passed it. Tomorrow I will take him to take his actual physical test. We went two times this week. They canceled. He should have already had it, but they canceled on him. Point is, he's doing everything he needs to do. And here's what I think of. When I look at Jabril, I think about all the American kids around him in his class right now who have it so much better than he does. They have been put in a position far ahead of him to be able to succeed in this world. They also have as much passion, or they probably have at least dreams that are as big as the dreams he has, if not bigger. But here's a kid in the middle who's saying, what's it going to take for me to get there? Just show me and I'll do it. He's willing to do the work. He's willing to put in the discipline. He's willing to go through the stages. Um, I was talking with Dr. Schatz this past week, Zeke Schatz, a man in our church playing tennis with him. And um, I was asking him, he's a radiologist at St. Bernard's, and I was asking him, hey, what did you have to do to go through the process to get to where you are? And he said, man, basically whenever I was in high school, he said, I came to a place where I was like, man, I want to be the best doctor I can be in northeast Arkansas. And so he said, you know, I want to raise the, the I want to elevate the level of health care in this area. And so he said, you know, as a result of that, I knew I can't just like want that. I have to go through a process. And here's the process he had to go through. He had to go to medical school for four years. He had to do an internship in Atlanta for one year. He had to do a radiology residency at the Mayo Clinic for four years. And then he did a subspecialty fellowship in musculoskeletal, I don't know how to say that, imaging at the Mayo Clinic for another year. And I know there are lots of examples out here in the audience today of people who have done this very thing. But here's my point, guys. Spiritually speaking, if like Nehemiah, you want to make your life count. Yes, you need passion. Yes, you need prayer. But you also need a plan. You need to get a plan in place, and then you need to be willing to do the hard work to execute that plan. And so here's what I want to do, just super practical before we end this morning. What I want to encourage you to do this morning, I dare you to do this, okay? I dare you this week to take time and to ask this question. God, what do you want for my life? What is your will for my life? I dare you, ask this question. Why do I right now have breath in my lungs? Do you realize the Bible says your days are numbered and the only reason you're here right now is because God's keeping you here? Do you realize that? If you believe the Bible, that's what the Bible says. That's the only reason you're breathing right now. When you're done, when God says you're done, you're done. Take time this week and ask yourself, God, why do I still have breath in my lungs? Guys, every Christian should be able to answer that question. Every Christian. And then here's what I want you to do. This is where it gets kind of hard. 
I want you to begin to, after you wrestle through that question, and by the way, invite your fight club into that. Certainly invite your spouse into that. I mean, I would literally ask your spouse, hey, why do you think I'm here? And by the way, if your spouse asks you that, don't say, I'm pretty sure you're just here for my sanctification, okay? (laughs) You're just here to teach me patience, right? I mean, you can say that, but I wouldn't recommend it. As you work through that, why am I here? What is your will for my life? I would encourage you then ask this. Consider where am I currently and how do I get from where I am to where God's calling me to go? The people that make a difference are the people that are going to take time to figure that out and then they're actually going to act on it. God, where do you want me to be? Where am I currently? And what steps do I need to take to begin to get from here to there? And here's my promise to you. Here's my promise to you this morning. I'm in front of all of you so you can hold me to this. My promise to you is if you will answer that question and you'll be committed to get the knowledge and the skills that you need in order to do that, if you will be faithful over the long run, if you will stay the course, if you won't quit like 80% of the people around you will do, if you will stay the course, here's my promise to you. As pastors of this church, we will do whatever we can to help you get to the place we believe, that you believe God's calling you to go. Even if that means leaving this church and going somewhere else and planting a church or taking a job somewhere else, we will do whatever we can to help you get there. Because at the end of the day, listen, when you don't pursue the, the very thing God's put you on this earth to do, it's not just bad for you, it's bad for the world. We want you, we need you to be you, to be in the place God's called you to be. And if you're here and you're like, that all sounds great, Jared, and wonderful, but I have no idea what God's will is for my life. If that's where you are, start with this one. I'm going to tell you God's will for your life. You ready? Here it is right here. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. The will of God for your life is your sanctification. When it comes to the will of God, there's a tier one and a tier two. Tier one is the revealed will of God. It's black and white. It's plain and simple. If a man comes to me and says, hey, I'm thinking about divorcing my wife. I'm not really sure if it's God's will or not. Uh, I'm just kind of getting tired of her. I like this other woman at work. I'm just, would you pray about it if that's God's will? I don't have to pray about that. I can tell you right now, it's not God's will. It's black and white, right? That's tier one. There are things in Scripture, plain and simple, black and white. This is the will of God. Then there's tier two. That's where it gets a little bit more personal, a little bit more unique. And here's what you need to understand. People are all about trying to understand tier two. But rarely will you get clarity around tier two until you focus on tier one. Rarely will you get clarity around what God wants you to do in your personal and unique calling, right? And the the personal and unique will for his life if you neglect his already revealed will that we see in scripture. So if you're here and you're like, man, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. Here's my encouragement to you. Listen, guys, get in the center of that and the rest will fall in place. I talk with people, it blows my mind. People will say things like, man, I just, I just wish God would show, reveal his will and who I should marry. But they won't stop looking at porn or sleeping with their girlfriend. Or, or people who say, man, I just wish God would show me. He would just open the right door for me to walk through so I can make a little bit more money for me and my family so I could be more generous. But they're not even generous with the money they do have. They're not even being faithful with what God has given them. Or people say, man, I just want to grow and I do want to become more of a mighty man or mighty woman of God and yet they refuse to forgive someone they know they have bitterness towards. 
Before God will ever give you a specific revelation about a direction you should go, he's going to ask you to commit to doing the things he's already called you to do in the scripture. So if you're here and you're trying to figure out God's plan for your life, start with what you know is true. Start with sanctification, which means becoming more and more like Jesus. Start with spending time in the word and in prayer. Start with getting involved in community. Jesus says you need the church. Plug into a community. That's a command from Scripture, y'all. It's a command. Start with getting on mission and making disciples or walking across the street and sharing the gospel with your neighbor or, or getting software on your computer so you're not looking at porn so much. Do the revealed will of God and everything else will begin to come into focus for your life. But listen to me, and I want to warn you, and then we'll be done. If you take what I'm saying seriously, if you will actually, and listen, most people will not do this. I get it. I'm convinced 80% of the church, and you can figure out which one you're in or not, is not really serious about what it is that God's called them to. We're playing a game, guys. We're showing up. We're checking a box. We're hoping when we die, we don't go to hell. But if you fall into that that, that narrow road that Jesus says that few people are on. He says the broad path that many people are on the lead destruction. It's the narrow path that leads to life. You will get on that narrow path and you'll walk that path during this lifetime. Take this to the bank, what I'm about to say. You will experience opposition. And this is exactly what we see in Nehemiah chapter 2. I mean, in, in verse 10, we see that because Nehemiah simply wants to go back and build a wall for Jerusalem so they can be saved, so the Messiah, Jesus Christ, can come into this world and save right, and rescue us, he faces opposition for this. And in Nehemiah 2 verse 10, it says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the city. Who would get upset about that? People are getting upset about it. And then if you look in verse 19... Here it is again. It says, When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant of Geshem and Arab heard of it, they jeered at us. They jeered at us. And they despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Charles Swindoll once said, Those who walk by faith will encounter the hostility of people who walk by sight. The Apostle Paul once said, All who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Heard an old World War II vet one time say, you know you're flying over the right target when you're getting shot at. The truth is, when you step out, when you try to fly over the right target, when you do what Christ has called you to do, you can expect opposition. And here's the thing. Sometimes that opposition will come from outside the church. For men like Sanballat, the pagan worshiper, these are people in the city who are going to mock you for your faith. They're going to say you're stupid for being a Christian. They're going to say you're foolish. Sometimes opposition will come from outside the church. But you know what? Unfortunately, let me just warn you. When you try to be a person of holy ambition, you take holy initiative, and you do the things God's called you to do, sometimes you not only will experience opposition outside the church, you're going to experience from people inside the church as well. We see it right here. Not only is Sanballat throwing shade... But you also have this guy, Tobiah, which, by the way, is a Hebrew. And he descended from the line of David. If anybody should be excited about the capital city being rebuilt, the city of David, it should be Tobiah. And yet, because he's gotten comfortable with the brokenness, which many people are, he begins also to come after and throw opposition after opposition at this man, Nehemiah, because of his holy ambition. And I'm just going to say this. 
opposition inside the church is the hardest thing to deal with. We expect it from those outside the church. It's when it's inside the church that it just knocks the wind out of your sails. I'm going to talk a whole lot more about this next week, but man, because my whole sermon next week is on how to deal with opposition. But when we first got started, I mean, it was crazy the things people were saying about us. You remember those things? I mean, it was just insane. Some of it I can't even say from the pulpit. But I mean, stuff like you're a cult. I mean, that, I can say that, but there's stuff worse than that people were saying about us. What's amazing, we decided to plant a church with just a handful of us just to make Jesus known in the city. We expected opposition from those outside the church. I'd say 99.9% of it came from people inside the church. They hated what we were doing. It's crazy to me. And I'm going to talk a whole lot more about it next week, so I won't go into it, but here's just my point, and we're done this morning. Listen, when you go from passion to praying to planning, you step out actually on those plans for the good of others and the glory of God, people are going to resent you for it. People hate other people with holy ambition. They really do. And so they'll hate you for it if you really become a man or woman of holy ambition. So that's why, as we end the day, I just want to say this. If we're going to be a people of holy ambition, we need to continually focus on a leader who is greater than Nehemiah. The truth is, we all have brokenness in our own lives, do we not? We all have walls that are broken down. We all see ruins in our lives and the lives of others. And if we're going to be a people, fellowship, if we're not just going to be a flash in the pan, but we're going to stay the course and we're going to continue to make a dent in this culture, if we're going to help see God's kingdom come and his will being done right here, if we're going to persevere, the message that we need to hear over and over and over is that there is a leader who is greater than Nehemiah who can deliver us from every danger and every opposition. There is a leader who is more ambitious than we will ever be. He is more ambitious for God's glory and for his kingdom to come and his will be done. And his name is Jesus Christ, who because of his holy ambition, left his comfy, cushy position in heaven and he pursued us to save us and to rescue us and to redeem us. And that's what we remember when we partake of communion every single week. And if you are here today and you have trusted in this good news of Jesus Christ that these three men just got up and testified about, man, this Jesus is yours today. And if you've trusted in him, if your hope is in his perfect life, death, and resurrection for you, come and partake of communion. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, be reminded of his perfect life, death, and his blood shed for you, his resurrection. We have two stations here in the front. We have two stations in the back. You can partake of communion in. It's a gluten-free option back there in my back, uh, the back left corner from where I'm standing. And so if you're here, and even if you're not a part of our church, we invite you. If you're a Christian, come partake of communion. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you've not trusted in Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you right now. Now, today is the day of salvation. Rather than receiving communion, receive Christ. Do it right now. You don't have to clean yourself up first. Listen to what these guys said. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to have all of your questions answered. Go to Jesus as you are. He's enough. Let's stand together. As the band comes forward, I want to pray for us. And then we'll partake of communion and sing together. If you have any questions about next steps and following Jesus, feel free to come talk to me. Adam's here in the front as well. We'd love to connect with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for every man, woman, and child who is here today. We recognize that no one is here by accident. Help us to receive the words that we needed to receive from this message. I pray that you will take the truth and drive it to our hearts. You know everyone's story here. You know what they're dealing with. You know what the obstacles are between them and you. 
between where they are and where you're calling them. And I pray that they will truly have the faith to believe they are here for a reason, that they were created for greatness, that you want to use them for the good of others and for the glory of your name, and that they will step into that reality that is found ultimately in you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.